So what I'm doing this semester, what we usually do in RUF is we preach through a book of the Bible. Uh, but I'm doing something different this semester. We are going, we're doing a series on relationships. Um, so why are this? Why are we doing a series on relationships? Well, as we've explored the past two weeks together, uh, we've seen that as humans we're created for relationships. That this is actually hardwired into us as humans. And that our entire lives are actually designed to be lived within the context of relationships. And this is because we are created by a God who is himself in relationship with himself. The Bible tells us that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is three in one, and he is a community. And us being made in his image means that we are made um, in the image of a community, um, which means that we're designed to live in community. And the second reason we're doing this is because y- y'all grew up in an age, and are coming to age, in an age um, where there are lots of voices clamoring for your attention telling you what to believe and what not to believe about relationships and sexuality and marriage and singleness and friendship and sex. And so my hope is that through this series, you'll have a clear understanding of how the Bible tells the story of relationships as you figure out what you believe and why you believe it. And as I get started, I just want to say two things. I want you to hear these loud and clear, and that's that you are not crazy and that this is really hard. So you're not crazy. You're not crazy for wanting relationships. Um, You're not crazy for wanting intimacy with other humans, and it's really hard. It's honesty, vulnerability, um, fully entering into relationships with others, being known and knowing others, sharing your hurts and your sadness, um, forgiving others. This is both the most important and life-giving things that you will do as a human, and it's also the hardest Um, So I just want to acknowledge that as we get started. So what we're going to do is we're going to read um, from the Bible together, and it is printed on uh, the back of your bulletin. I'm going to read uh, from the end of Genesis chapter 2, and then uh, read from Genesis chapter 3. And if you were here last week, you might be thinking, hey, isn't that what we read last week? Yes. So um, there's going to be some overlap from what we talked about last week, but um, it's because there's a lot in here that helps us make sense of who we are as people. So I'm going to read this for us. This is the word of God for us tonight, and he gives it to us in love. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, or warfare, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, for Adam and his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and to the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Um, Father, thank you for your word to us tonight, and um, Lord, I pray for the folks here, for those who um, have have a hard time believing that this could be true. I pray that you would um, come and meet us. Then, um, Lord, for those of us in this room who uh, come in here saddled with uh, the guilt and shame of things that have happened in these first few weeks of school, um, I pray that you would welcome them here. And for um, those who are tired and weary and um, have hard time hanging on, um, I pray that you would be comfort and rest. Um, Lord, speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we've talked about being created for relationships, and then last week we talked about the brokenness of relationships, and this week we're going to talk about the risk of relationships. Because we all feel that when we enter into relationships, any real relationship, um, we understand that this requires assuming risk into ourselves. And that risk, the risk of relationships, and the way that we talk about this is vulnerability. Right? The risk of a relationship is the risk of being vulnerable. So when I was in seventh grade... Um, one night, I was outside of Jacqueline Lauer's house um, with this girl, EJ, and um, everyone knew that I was going to tell her that I liked her um, and that I wanted to go out, whatever that meant, in 1997. Um, and I was terrified, um, and I knew that she liked me, and I knew she was going to say yes, but still was terrified, right, because this felt so risky. So I was sitting on the hood of Jacqueline's dad's car. I mean, this is a vivid memory. Um, I'm sitting on the hood of Jacqueline's dad's car, and I'm just, like, talking to EJ, you know, about whatever. And, um, and then Jacqueline opens her bedroom window and puts her stereo on the window and plays Boys to Men. Do you all know who Boys to Men is? It's, like, great 90s slow jam. Like, slow dancers in sixth grade wanted them to put on Boys to Men. It was the, it was the good stuff. So she puts Boys to Men on on the radio at the window, which is like 20 feet from the car. Um, so now I'm scared and I'm embarrassed. And uh, like 45 minutes later, I stumble through some, I like you, will you go out with me speech. And she says, yes. And I'm over the moon, right? For like three weeks before she breaks up with me. <laughs> right? So. <laughs> yeah, just make you laugh. So you felt this, right? You felt this or you felt something like this, right? This fear of not measuring up, not being enough. And then perhaps you've been rejected. Um, There's a woman named Brene Brown who's a professional research scientist. And she calls this shame. 
She says, everyone feels it, we all feel it, we know, all know the feeling of the warm wash of shame. And she says that while we all experience shame as humans, men and women actually experience shame differently. So for women, um, the way that she describes it is she points to this old commercial where there's this woman and um, she says this. She says, I put the wash on the line, I pack the lunches, hand out the kisses, and be at work at five to nine. I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan, never let you forget that you're a man. And so for women, shame, she says, it's to do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. Shame for women is this web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations about whom you're supposed to be, and it's a straitjacket. And for men, it's a little bit different. For men, it's not a bunch of competing, conflicting expectations, but shame is one thing. It's do not be perceived as, as weak, right? Don't be perceived as weak. But for both men and women, shame is the voice that tells you that you are not enough. It's the voice that tells you that you are not enough. So tonight, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at um, what the Bible in this passage has to say about shame, and then we're going to see what God's response is to our shame. And so as we look at Genesis 3 together, um, we're going to get a definition of shame from this. And the Old Testament doesn't speak in definitions to us. Genesis is part of the Old Testament. It doesn't speak in definitions, but rather it gives us pictures. And here we're given three pictures to help us make sense of shame. So the first picture is nakedness. If you look at verse 7 with me, um, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Nakedness, this feeling of being naked and exposed when you feel like you're not enough. And then there's this connection with fear, right? Fear of being found out. People really knew. Fear of being exposed. It's that looming question. What if people found out? What if they found out about my family? Or what I do when I'm by myself? Or my struggle with pornography? Or my history? And what's our response to this question? What if, what if people found out? What if they knew me and they saw that I was not enough? What's our response to this? Our response is that we hide. And we hide behind all sorts of things. Um, we hide behind our busyness. And think about your schedules. Think about how we pack our schedules full. And then we're able to hide from others. We're even able to hide from ourselves. Right? It's at wake, if somebody asks, how are you, the right answer is, I'm busy. Right? Right? You wear it as a badge. And it's really just a way to hide because you can't be seen when you're busy. You can't hit a moving target. Um, so we hide behind busyness. We also hide behind spiritual activity. Um, I've got a friend who told me, who told the story of how when he was in college, he went to four campus ministries and three churches. And he says he went to one church because he loved the music, one church for the preaching, and one church for the community. And so to others, he looked really spiritually intense. Um, people would probably say things like, Matt is such a strong Christian. But the way that he tells it was it was just another way for him to hide. Because no one could know him when he was everywhere. Right? When he's hopping from one Christian activity to the next, no one could actually know him. Um, we also hide behind our personalities. Some of you are extroverts, and you learn from a very early age that you could mani- manipulate others with like a cute face or a funny quip. Um, others of you are introverts, and you learn early on that no one can touch you inside when you hide in your shyness. And some of you, when you came to college, um, you took the opportunity to reinvent yourself. So you're the funny guy, or you're the intellectual guy, or you're the up-for-anything adventurer, or you're the funny girl, or the nice girl, or you're the good guy, or you're the party girl. See, we're all hiding behind something. We all have these masks, right? We all have this armor. And we're hiding because when Adam and Eve sinned, it took their nakedness, took their, their, their vulnerability, and it turned it into shame. 
See, vulnerability isn't the problem because vulnerability is just being human. There's an author named Andy Crouch, and he says this. He says, of all the creatures in the world, only human beings can be naked. By adulthood, every other creature naturally possesses whatever fur or scales or hide, which is necessary to protect it from its environment. No other creature, even naked mole rats or hairless cats, no other creature shows any sign in its natural state of feeling incomplete in the way that humans consistently do. Only human beings live our whole lives able to return to a state that renders us uniquely vulnerable. Not just vulnerable to nature, but vulnerable to one another. And the effect of Adam and Eve's sin and our sin on nakedness is shame. And so the second image we have in this passage is the image of rejection. Adam and Eve experience rejection from one another, and they experience rejection from God. Look at verse 24 with me. Um, We're told that they're driven out of the garden and they become outsiders. And rejection is that voice inside that says, I don't belong here. I don't fit in. I'm different. I'm not accepted. And what shame does is shame translates different or difference as better or worse. If you ever felt noticeably different than the majority of the people around you, you've experienced shame. Our culture is obsessed with body image. And being thin for ladies and muscular for men. And if you have extra body weight, you have felt different. You felt like you don't belong. If you come from a family that doesn't have as much money as everyone else, you feel like you don't belong. If you were raised in the South and you were attracted to the same sex, you probably feel like you don't belong. At our first RUF this fall, um, I said that Wake Forest devours weakness. And this is what I was talking about. That it's not just wake, it's any culture of perfectionism is also, also a culture of shame. America is a perfectionist culture. That's why it's a culture of shame. Any culture or group or person that interprets different as being better or worse creates shame. I see this in my own family. Um, I didn't realize how hard I am on myself, my own perfectionism, until about two years ago when I saw Leo, my now almost six-year-old son, being hard on himself. As a four-year-old, demanding perfection from himself. I thought he had to have learned this somewhere. It's because he learned it from me. And most of you were raised in communities or families or schools that demanded perfection of you. And communities of perfection are also communities of shame. So the third image we're given here is the image of defilement. This is the third picture of shame. See, what is it that they're trying to cover up? What is it that we're trying to cover up? It's this idea that I'm unpresentable or I'm tainted, I'm defiled, I'm disgusting, I'm unclean, I'm unlovely. Um, In 1993, going back to the 90s again, uh, there's a band, Radiohead. Does anyone still listen to Radiohead? Yes, there's like seven of us. We do. Um, This song came out called Creep. And uh, this song articulates this, this experience of shame and feeling... And the feeling of defilement so well. So um, I'm going to quote it for you, censor it a little bit, um, and quote it for you. This is what it says. I don't care if it hurts. I want to have control. I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. I want you to notice when I'm not around. You're so special. I wish I was special, but I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. Do you hear the shame in his voice? Everyone is great and I don't fit. I'm alone. 
This is why some of you are slaving away at your schoolwork. It's to prove that I'm okay. This is why many of you obsess about social situations, to quiet the voice. Right? If I can control what they think and say about me, then I'll be okay. This is why many, many of you fall into self-harm, to quiet those voices shouting at you that you're unworthy. Why so many of you count every calorie, work out addictively, even purging. Right? I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. I'm okay. Let me prove that I'm okay. Shame is the reason why fraternity and sorority rush is absolutely terrifying, right? Going in front of a group of people and saying, will you tell me, will you please tell me that I belong with you, that I'm okay, that I'm accepted, right? It's devastating to be rejected. And you put these together. You put nakedness and rejection and defilement together. Um, And all of us experience this. I feel this. The person next to you feels this. No one is immune to this. I just want to point out that shame and guilt are different things. Guilt is feeling bad about something I did. And shame is feeling bad about something I am. Guilt is I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. Guilt is I am unloving. Shame is I am unlovable. So where does shame come from? Well, first it comes from the things we do. Right? We experience it. You experience it after porn. After you shred her reputation after you sleep with him. And, and we experience it from um, the things that they did to us. People have done awful things to us, leaving us feeling tainted, unlovable, and dirty. It could be something that your coach said, or your mom said, the way your uncle looked at your body. Um, the, the lie is that when people find out about my story, I will be rejected. So what does this have to do with our relationships? Well, if you're going to have any hope of life-giving relationships, you must be seen and known. And shame blocks this. Instead, we lie and we hide and we pretend. So what do we do about shame? What do we do about shame? Well, the most downloaded TED Talk, there's like 31 million views, was by this woman named Brene Brown, I already mentioned, and it's called The Power of Vulnerability. It's a 20-minute talk, and in this TED Talk, she tells the story of her research and how her research led her into an existential crisis that sent her into therapy and how she had a breakdown um, and that she discovered something. What she discovered is that the happiest people that she worked with, the most wholehearted, grounded people she worked with were people who embraced vulnerability, people who were willing to be seen and take the risk of being known even though it was terrifying. She said, this, she said that this sent her into a crisis. Why a crisis? Because she realized that her research was telling her that vulnerability is the key to happiness. And her response was, but I hate vulnerability. I hate it. I'm allergic to it. So she goes to therapy, and after a year of therapy, she says she had a breakdown, which led to a breakthrough. Um, and she was led to a question that this whole TED Talk is moving towards. And this is the question. So the question is, how can you get the courage to be vulnerable? How can you get the courage to put out there for other people to, to be put out there for other people to see you and to be seen and for people to possibly judge you? And you may seem ugly or unacceptable. How do you get the courage to do this? And here's her answer. She says, you have to know that you are worthy. You have to have a deep confidence and a reassurance that you're worthy. Okay, but that just raises the question to another level, right? Um, how do you get that? How do you get the confidence to know that you're worthy when everything inside of you is telling you that you're, you're not? In other words, how can you have a deep reassurance in your gut that says, I'm acceptable, 
when everything in you is saying, I'm not? Well, here's God's answer. Here's how God treats shame-soaked people like us. First, we see in this passage that God pursues them. In verse 9, we see that he sends out this search party. He goes looking for Adam and Eve. He says, where are you? I mean, they were there in the trees, but he goes after them saying, where are you? And this is the story of the whole Bible, that God is aggressively pursuing his people in love. He says he's going after the ones he loves. Now, how would it feel if you were loved like that? And that's the love that God has for you. He pursues shame-saturated people like you and me. So God pursues them, and then God provides for them. There's this command in Genesis 2 where God speaks to Adam and Eve, and he says, If you disobey, if you eat of this tree I told you not to eat, you will die. But what happens in Genesis 3? They don't die. right? Adam and Eve don't die when they disobey. Instead, we see in verse 21 that they're clothed with these animal skins. Which means that an animal died in their place. God killed an animal in their place. He provides a substitute for them. This animal was forsaken so that Adam and Eve would be clothed. And this animal points to a greater substitute. Jesus. And as as the Bible tells the story of Jesus' death, all four Gospels include this one detail. They tell us that the soldiers who were there crucifying Jesus, they were gambling for Jesus' clothes. And this means that Jesus was naked on the cross. Crucifixion was, not, was designed not only to execute criminals, but to simultaneously humiliate them. And I find it fascinating that virtually, it is virtually impossible for us to look on his nakedness, or even consider it, considering how embarrassing it feels. Um, and our own discomfort with this is revealed in the way that we represent the crucifixion artistically. Right? With few exceptions, Jesus is depicted with a loincloth or at least something covering him. And I say this to point out that although we may assent theologically to how the cross delivers us from our shame as well as our sin, actually permitting ourselves to be there on that Friday, being with a naked Jesus, is an entirely different matter. Jesus' literal naked vulnerability is a testimony to us that he knows exactly what it's like to be us. Jesus strung up, exposed for the world to see, and he was mocked, and he was shamed on the cross, and he was forsaken by God. Why does the Bible emphasize this? It's because he's our substitute. He did this for you. God pursues, God provides, and finally we see that God clothes them. God covers them in these animal skins. And so when anyone looked at Adam and Eve, they saw a person. They saw two people adorned in God's grace. And this points us to the final day when God will parade all those who trust in Christ. Parade us before all creation to show off his people adorned in splendor and glory. And then you will hear this voice that says, well done, good and faithful servant. And there will be no criticism and no condemnation. Adorned with the glory and beauty of Christ and all will applaud. And This is what God does for sinners like us. He pursues And he provides and he covers. And so to answer Brene Brown's question, where can I find that inner worthiness that propels me to be vulnerable? It's God who makes you worthy. He's the one who gives you confidence to be vulnerable. No shame, no criticism, but honor. There's no rejection. And when this defines you, when you believe this in your gut, you can stand up and say, I don't care what people say about me. I care more about somebody else's opinion. 
Yes, it'll be hurt. It'll hurt when you get rejected by that girl, but it won't destroy you anymore. Because my identity is in the God who pursues me and provides for me and covers me. And it's only when you have this confidence in your gut, this confidence of God's love for you in Christ, that you'll have the courage to come out of your shame and to be known in your vulnerability. And this turns the risk of relationships into an opportunity. Because rather than having to do this cost-benefit analysis of everyone around you and to spend your energy hiding or fearing rejection or silencing the voices that tell you you're not enough, rather than doing that, you are free to walk into relationships and free to walk into your classrooms and free to walk into parties and even into your own home with a different soundtrack playing. God transforms the risk of relationships into an opportunity by replacing the voice that says you are not enough with the voice that says, I am a good, good father, and you are loved by me. In closing, um, I want to leave you with a question. And this is the question that God asks Adam and Eve in our, test, our text. And the question is this. Where are you? Where are you? And as you leave tonight, I want you to um, consider that and let that question search you. Where are you? Where am I? So why does God ask this question? Right? Does it... Does it does Is it that he doesn't know where they are? No, he knows where they are. It's to invite Adam and Eve out of hiding. So where are you? Are you hiding? Are you pretending? Are you afraid? Are you resting in Jesus and what it is that he's done for you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, you know us. um, Lord Jesus, that you know our shame to the fullest extent. That you've experienced it fully on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe um, this, what you have done for us, and to see that you, um, you provide for us, and uh, you pursue us, and you clothe us because you love us. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name.